thank you so much. Uh, worship team, thank you, Lindsay, and thank you all for singing along with us today. And I would love for you to join us today as we study God's Word. If you want to find your place in your Bibles, Job chapter 1, not too hard to find, kind of in the middle of your Bibles. If you get to Psalms, you've went too far. Back up just a little while, and you'll find the book of Job. Um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But a year ago, this was our first Sunday in what was at the time a brand new reality, one that none of us were excited about, uh, one that uh, didn't make any of us feel um, the best. Uh, of course, we, along with churches all across our country, um, suspended our indoor gatherings uh, because of the unknowns, the uncertainness of the times, because of our needing to wait for more information, our desire and priority to show love for one another uh, alongside businesses, schools, basically everything and everybody. We began to do things differently around here, and life changed a lot. From March 22nd to June 7th, we didn't gather together like we are right now. And I know there's plenty of churches in our world, in our country right now, in our community that have not yet been able to get back together um, still. But with all respect to those, just relatively speaking, um, I'll be honest, uh, those nine weeks were some of the weirdest, most uncomfortable, uh, most vulnerable and anxious days of my life. Uh, you know, this is what I live for, uh, not just me up here talking. Uh, believe me, I've talked a lot. Uh, the la I talked a lot during those three months, more than I really wanted to. Uh, but uh, I it feels like I haven't stopped talking since. But no, what I live for is the church gathering together, the people of God that come together, God's house filling up uh, for a time of worship and a time of hearing His Word, a time of coming together and, and joining together uh, to be the church, not just in these buildings, but in our world. And, and uh, I know those weren't just anxious days for me as a pastor, but uh, they were for you too, and, and they've continued to be, haven't they? Uh, because it wasn't just a nine-week thing. It went on all year, and we're still dealing with, uh, with a world that is a lot different than it was before. Uh, we've all moved closer to the edge, and I think that's a good way to describe it. We've all been on edge, and, and over the last year, we kind of moved closer to the edge, and, and maybe if we're being honest, we dropped a few ledges in the process. If you go back a year, and the question that has been on our minds since it all began as we first begin to hear about COVID-19 before March, and as we begin to see all the dominoes kind of uh, lining up, and as begin, things begin to, to kind of turn for the worse, uh, I think a question that we've all been asking over the last year, uh, whether it was directed to the same people or place or thing, we've all been asking, why? Like, why did this happen? Why in the year 2020 could something like this happen to us and, and and maybe the direction of that question changed maybe you were asking that question to to yourself to experts to leaders to the source of the virus or whatever you might would would want to think but in general I think we were all asking that question in our prayers weren't we we were all asking God how could this happen why would something like this happen and, and not because we're in defiance or we're angry but just because we want to know and we're kind of wondering God if, if, if you allowed this or whatever the reason for this hey you know I would love to know so maybe we can see and, and understand uh, the picture more clearly and, and better and as the year went on and as things got more complicated for us as a nation from social to political issues we kept asking and we kept wondering why Again, not in a you owe me kind of way but in a just I kind of just want to know kind of way of course we all want to know why could something like this happen? We've all been asking a different kind of why over the last month as we build towards Easter um, in the series that we're currently in. We've been asking the question, why did God create the world? 
We want to know. And, and if it can be known, if it should be known, I think it should definitely impact the way that we live. So we've been asking this question as we build up to the greatest day for, for Christians and really for anybody in the world. We've been asking this question, why did God create the world? So more, more specifically or more generally than, you know, why did this happen? If God is our creator and God is our Lord, then, then what, what was his purpose in creation to begin with? And if God had, and if God has a creative purpose, if God had a motive for all of this, then why, or then we ought to know, or I think we ought to know, and we probably should make his motive our motive. We began with a broad question, why did God make us? And we've narrowed that question more specifically over the last couple of weeks. And, and here's what we've concluded and what I hope that we can glean from this. God is consistent in his motivation. So from his broad creation of the world to his creation of you to his creation of the nations and the things that happen under his watch, which is everything, God is consistent whether he causes it, permits it, allows it, however you want to phrase it, God is consistent in his motivation. Ultimately, there is one reason for all things that happen under his watch. Now, as expected, some wise make it easier to understand this. Some require a bit more nuanced and delicate conversation. And today is one of those subjects. So again, if you have a Bible, oh, I hope you do. If, there, if you don't, there should be one in front of you in the hymnal rack. I would love for you to open up to the book of Job with me this morning. Um, maybe you're curious. Uh, probably not, but this makes off for a good conversation starter. Maybe you're curious. Why uh, is this three-letter word, Job, pronounced one way in reference to a man that lived long ago, and it's pronounced another way? in reference to our professions, as in we say job when we're talking about where we work, but we say Job when we're talking about, really only when we're talking about this book of the Bible. Um, well, whether you came here for this or not, uh, a little Hebrew study can help us understand um, why we say Job. Uh, the Hebrew behind our word Job is this word Aob, Aob or Yob, uh, which is uh, nothing that uh, uh, maybe you've thought about before, but one of the crowning achievements as English speakers is we have taken Y's and we've turned them into J's. So the reason why we say Job is because the Hebrews say Job, but we as English speakers um, love to take words that begin with Y or I and make, put, them, put J's on them. Um, and it may interest you because it does me. I couldn't imagine why. Um, but the letter J, the letter J is really only 500 years old um, as a linguist named John Giorgio fun name. Uh, he is responsible for making this sound distinct from I's and Y's. So that's why we say Job and not Job. And of course, you're glad to know that, aren't you? I had a cool screen up there for that moment, but okay. So it's really Job, but we can call him Job. I think God will forgive us for that. Don't worry. Um, but pronunciation isn't the only thing weird about this book or different about this book. The backstory for this book is a bit of an enigma. Um, yet we can piece it together um, if we work a little bit. One thing's for sure is that while it may be placed in the middle of your Bible, it tells a story that chronologically belongs at the front of your Bibles. So I'll help you understand this a little bit. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the books of the Bible are organized first by genre, then by chronology. So by genre, I mean that the types of the books are different from each other. Uh, the, first four, the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses, and they're considered the Torah or the, the original Hebrew Bible that tells the origin of Israel and how the nation became, how they became a nation, uh, the, how God created them 
and how God formed them and put them in a land of their own. So Moses wrote those books, so those take prominence, and they're at the front. Um, After those books come the books of history, beginning with uh, Joshua going through the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And after the books of history are the books of poetry. Job is included in that uh, grouping. And then after the books of poetry are the prophets. So that's how Job can be the first of the poetic books, but actually take place earlier on because it's the first of, of, of its own genre. Now, to call Job a poetic book, it's a bit of a stretch, um, but what it means is that Job, Job contains a lot of monologues, speeches that are dramatized as if they were made for a playwright. Um, so it tells a narrative, yes, but it also features long speeches by a few people that are, that are in the book, So, which is why most of the time, if someone does a book, a study on Job, they talk about the first two chapters and the last chapter, and they breeze past the middle 39 uh, because there's a lot of monologues, a lot of kind of difficult chapters to look at verse by verse. But more to the point, Job front to back only covers a very short window of time. Uh, And if it were placed on the biblical timeline, it would probably fall somewhere between 2500 and 2100 BC. And that's significant because that's way back between Genesis 12 and Genesis 10. And the reason why we put it somewhere in those chapters, it's after the flood and before Abraham. Before Abraham and definitely before the nation of Israel. There's a lot of ways we can conclude this. Uh, Mainly, there's no mention of Abraham in the book. Um, There's no mention of Israel in the book. There's in everywhere else in the Bible that takes place after Genesis, you hear God referred to as the God of Abraham. So clearly, this happens before Abraham's calling and and coming to God. Um, And that requires that it take place before Genesis 12. There are a lot of other primitive things about this book that point to an early placement in history. Uh, We see in Job's description that he has a ton of livestock, that his wealth is determined by his livestock, which was a thing that they did in the ancient world. Uh, another clue that this takes place pre-Genesis 12 is that we're told that Job is from a place called Uz. Now, it's an ancient city that other historical records show did not, uh, was not in the area of Israel, but was in the Saudi Arabian desert. So we know that Abraham was from Ur, Job was from Uz, same ancient energy there, probably contemporaries if you uh, could nail it down. Now, it just so happens, though, that there, there's another mention of us in the Bible, not a place, but a person that helps us, again, figure out when this took place. Genesis 10, we're told that Shem, one of Noah's sons, who was the father of the people of Eber, which is where the Hebrews come from, we've talked about that, uh, the father of all the children of Eber, Shem was the brother of Japheth, and this tells us that he had some kids. And one of his kids, or a couple of his kids, the next verse tells us, Sons of Shem, Alam, Asher, um, Aparkshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, a guy named Uz. So Uz, most likely, was, uh, was a leader of, of some sorts in his tribe and had a, had a city named after himself, but this city wasn't around for much longer, so it must have taken place somewhere, again, around Genesis 10, Genesis 11, which would have put it around 22, 2100 B.C. So most likely, Job lived uh, sometime after the flood before God called Abraham and began to form the nation of Israel. So that makes it very likely that Job was one of the very few people that worshiped the one true God. That Job was one of the very, very few people that knew God and, and connected to the God of, of, of Adam, Noah, and Enoch before him. So Job, uh, another quick note, Job lived at least 160 or 170 years. 
um, maybe even more, but that would have been the average lifespan um, in the post-flood, pre-Israel phase of earth. So uh, again, Job lived a long life, so that's how we kind of place him in this time period. Um, Now maybe it's just me, but I love using the Bible to help explain and further understand the Bible. I think it's pretty great, so I think I hope you didn't mind this kind of oppor- this attempt to piece together the timelines and help you all understand, hopefully you all understand, where Job fits in the overall biblical timeline. Um, it's pretty great. Now, by all accounts, though, the story of Job is not what most would call great. Um, actually, most would consider Job's story to be a tragedy. A tragedy, and that's what most of us would call it. We've heard it referred to. Job, on the other hand, handles the tragic events that come on him a lot different than we would, much different than most anyone anywhere else would. But the ironic thing is this. It's because of the book of Job that we have a choice to respond differently to suffering. That Job doesn't know what we know, and we'll talk about that, And while we may would look at Job's handling of his situation and think, man, I wouldn't have done that, Job's handling shows us that we can respond to suffering differently. Now, what's most ironic and most remarkable is in the story, as Job experiences and encounters these tragic events, Job is unaware of what we get clued into as the reader in retrospect. If he does know, he sure doesn't let on that he does. Now, some would call Job's theology primitive or simple, which anybody's theology in this point of time would have been very primitive and very simple, um, which is why I thought the time period was important for us to know, because Job didn't have a Bible. Job didn't have a priest to go and talk to. Job didn't have a religious figure or community to go to. Job's theology, if he had any, it was non-existent in terms of an overall understanding of God and an overall conviction about God. There was basically no information about the one true God, as readily available as it is to us. So Job doesn't have all the categories and terminology that we have. This is as prehistoric and primitive as it gets. Job just believes, or simply believes, in a God who is wholly good and totally in control, as if that isn't enough information, which maybe we'll learn it was. To us, sophisticated, educated Bible scholars, oh, we think, well, that's a little too simple. We need some more understanding. We need some more, some more categories. But maybe Job was on to something, and maybe Job only having this positioned him to be a lot more capable than we might think we are. Now, in all seriousness, Genesis may have taught us about the fall, but Job teaches us how to respond to it, in particular when things fall on us. And Job's reactions that end up providing the foundation for how we view, understand, and categorize tragedies, trials, and tribulations. You know, as a pastor, I rely on the whole Bible. Um, All the insights that have been compiled from studying the Bible, they're important to me. Um, Other texts that teach on this subject are important to me. And while we may have the full counsel of God's Word, and while we may be smarter than Job was, when facing problems like Job faced, we aren't much better for it. And I hope you hear that. And I'm not trying to insult anybody, I'm talking to me. As somebody who thinks he knows a little bit of something about the Bible and has read all other sorts of books that talk about subjects that we're going to talk about today, Job didn't have any of that information. Job was about as unenlightened as you could get in terms of the biblical spectrum. He didn't have anything that we have, yet he dealt with his trials and his suffering far better than we often do. Even though we have the whole book of Job, even though we have the whole Bible, so many interpretations and teachings on the issue of tragedy and suffering, 
We seem to deal with tragedy worse than Job did, with less faith and less confidence than Job did. So I got to ask us, why is that? I don't think that's okay to you. I don't think we should be able to read Job's story and think, wow, we deal with it a lot worse than he did, and we have a lot more information than he does. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Now, as I've been studying the Bible for years and years and dealing with the subject in particularly, it's only recently dawned on me that maybe the message of Job isn't, oh, poor pitiful Job, if only he knew what we knew. Maybe the message actually is, oh, poor pitiful us, if only we knew what Job knew. If only we believed what Job believed, because clearly he had something right. Job believed in a God who was both sovereign and good, a God who was totally in control, and a God who was definitely wholly good. While knowing that he belonged to a world that was sinful and fragile, that was Job's two worldviews. And it was in between those realities that Job lived out his life. It was in the reality that Job prospered beyond anyone else in his land. And it was in that same reality that everything turned on its head one day. And he couldn't have never saw it coming. So with all this in mind, and Job's worldview in mind, and his limited knowledge in mind compared to us, I want us to read Job, about Job's bad day and see how he responds to it. And I think we can learn something from it. Job 1, verse 1. It was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, or probably their birthdays, uh, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, or pray for them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, this is important, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job had a well understanding that the world was fallen and sinful that he had it in him and his children had it in them. But Job had a relationship with God. His children must have didn't. So Job did this regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God or the angels of God presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, when it says none like him, literally, this was a day and age when there were none like him. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not had a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay your hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. 
When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So all of a sudden, one of the categories that made Job the wealthiest man, men of the land were taken away from him, his livestock depleted. While he was speaking, another came, and said, The fire of God fell, uh, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So you can go over to verse 3, and you can draw a line through that verse and say everything that, that, that made Job great was taken away from him. In the blink of an eye. But it doesn't stop there. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Job would say, I know I'm praying for them today because I know where they're at. It's one of their birthdays. So to add insult to injury on this great day where Job was praying for his children, Verse 19, suddenly a great wind from across the wilderness struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So not only, not only did Job lose all of his wealth, not only was Job praying for his family on this day, but on that very day, while he was worshiping, he lost his family. He lost everything. Job in verse 20, then he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job lost everything, but he still blessed God's name. From what we gather, Job does not know, he is not privy to what goes on behind the scenes with the devil before God and that conversation and all the details there that we don't even know all about. What goes on behind the scenes, or if he was able, if he did know it, he still categorized it all under God's umbrella. Because what does he say in verse 21? God has taken this stuff away. Now, we know the whole story. We know that God allowed the enemy to do what he did, that God was simply proving to the devil that Job was a better man than he thought he was. And, of course, the proof is in the pudding. Verse 21 confirms that he was. What I really want us to zoom in on is that Job categorized all of this under God's umbrella of sovereignty and goodness. Job didn't make the grave mistake that we often make. See, Job had found a lot of treasure. I must have moved past something. Job had found a lot of treasure in this world, but he refused to find himself in either of it. Do you hear that? Job had found all sorts of treasure in this world, but he refused to find himself in either the world or the treasure. That's a temptation that many of us don't always overcome. When in chapter 2, after he's lost his health on top of all this, his wife questions why he's holding on to his faith, he is steadfast that God is both sovereign and good. If you look at chapter 2, verse number 10, after he loses his health, and he's scraping bulls off of his skin with a, a pot, a piece of pottery. His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, there's no reason to believe anymore, is there? Because you lost everything. 
And Job says to her, you speak as one who is foolish. Shall we indeed accept God, accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? See what Job is saying? Job says, I know that God is the one who gave me all those good things. And I believe that God is the one that allowed this stuff to happen. God is the one that gave me these bad things or took these things from me. And I want to get inside Job's mind for just a minute. Was God not good before he gave me all those good things? You see what happens when we begin to determine and define God's goodness based on what we have? We begin, to, we begin to shrink God down into what he's done for us. And as if somehow he stops doing that for us, he's no longer good. But what does Job come to the conclusion? Wasn't God good before I even existed? How shallow of me to shrink God down into someone who is only good if he does good for me. Job says, no, no, no. God was good before he gave me those things. And now that he's taken those things, is he not still good? What do you think? Isn't it so easy to only see God in the good things that we've been given from God? Isn't it so easy to forget that God has been God a lot longer than that? Job also thinks, was God only trustworthy when my life seemed under control? Or is he in control even in the midst of my disaster? This is a choice that we have to make every time we enter a season of disaster. Every time we suffer, every trial we go in, is God only trustworthy when it seems like our lives are under control? Or has he been trustworthy all along? Is he in control even when we seem like we've lost control? You see, Job had something that most of us sorely lack. Job had a patient faith. Job believed that ultimately God is telling a story, that our life is just one reel of that story. Job believed that the purpose of that story was God's glory over and against this fallen world. Job believed that the passion behind the story was God's love, so he knew that he could trust God. He knew that he could rely on God, and this is the big crucial thing that we need to focus in on. Job was willing to be patient while God's glory designed his story. We aren't so patient, are we? Because why would you take the good things away? Wasn't my story going just fine? But God had a plan. And Job wasn't going to lose faith in the end or the fullness or in the completion of his story. And this is where we all need to stop and breathe every once in a while. When we see a blip in our stories that don't match up with what we think God has promised us or what we think we have prayed for or what we would like for him to give us. Job believed, my story isn't over. And for me to get where God wants me to get, it may require I lose everything. I may get it back. I may suffer worse. But my story isn't over. And now I'm not going to lose faith in my story over one afternoon. We're very fragile creatures, aren't we? We're very temperamental creatures, aren't we? Now, in this series, we've called it Talos, which is about the completion of God's plan, the fullness of God's plan. Why did God create the world? Why did God create us? Why did God create the nations? Because God did all of this for His glory. He leveraged the fallen world to paint a backdrop that would magnify and exalt the glory of His grace. We've talked about God's intentions from the nations that he created. God filled the earth with human beings who all look different, but at their core they share his image, possess the same spark of life and a God-given soul. 
Ethnicity, we've talked, is a gift that we all possess in a unique way. Yet we all display this for the same purpose. See, Job introduces us to another subject that every human being deals with. Suffering. Tragedy. Trials and tribulations. And the reason why we're talking about suffering as a part of this series is because suffering is core to the human existence and to the human experience. Isn't it true? Now, that's not what we would like it to be. We, wouldn't, we don't wish this to be the case, but it's true, isn't it? The suffering is core to our existence and our experience. And maybe that sentence is jarring to us. Maybe it doesn't sit well with us, but we all know it's true. Whereas we can all agree God made us and we all can agree that we're made for His glory, it's not so easy to think that, his, that suffering is something that God permits. Suffering is something that God has a purpose for. But that's what Job teaches us. That's the message that Job establishes for all history to take notes from. Job loses his possessions, but he does not lose his purpose. Job loses his possessions, but he does not lose his purpose. He maintains his passion for God's glory with a patient faith. See, Job chose to believe that his suffering came straight from God's hands. He didn't bat an eye about it. He actually worshipped through it. Why do I say Job chose? Because, you know, maybe Job didn't know what we know, but I don't think that still was his natural reaction. But Job made a decision. I choose to trust God anyway. I choose to worship God anyway. Job was so confident in God's integrity that just as he enjoyed God's choice to give him prosperity, he knew he could endure God's choice to give him pain. Do you hear that? That Job had enjoyed the hand of God giving him prosperity. And Job, Job made a decision. I am going to endure God's choice to bring pain on my life. Again, Job didn't know all the details, but he didn't need to know all the details because he knew that God could be trusted and that God was sovereign through this trial he was facing. He could endure God's choice to give him pain. Somehow Job was able to compartmentalize all this, remain confident through all this, and while the enemy tried to chip away at his faith, he remained and maintained a patient faith. And it's abnormal to us, isn't it? it doesn't, it's not 21st century theology or Christianity, is it? For so long, we've tried to distance God from our suffering and maybe preserve God's integrity. We think, oh, I can't talk about God causing trials because it makes us feel, think less of God. God can't intend on this, can he? God wouldn't cause this, would he? So we've, brought, we've bought into the lies that he never would. And don't you see what's happened? The enemy has caused us to lose faith in God with every trial that we face. He's taken the joy and the purpose from us while we act as if our stories are on pause in the bad and can only have purpose in the good. Job invites us to be free from this broken world. Job invites us to, to break free from the lies that this world has told us about God. I want to ask you, do you think that Job was just putting on a show when he worshipped, or do you think he was sincere? I mean, he lost his wealth, his family, his health. Do you think he was just pretending? I don't think so. He was literally and sincerely worshiping. Because he had a peace that surpasses understanding. That so many of us think is unreal. Don't you see that what we've allowed Satan to do to us, he's caused us to shift our faith from God to the world. He's caused us to believe that God is only sovereign and good when we can see it and when we can feel it. 
Job, on the contrary, thought, though he lost everything through patient faith, he remained at peace with God and God's plan. I want to ask you, and this is the whole point of this conversation, what if that same pathway is accessible to us? Where we can worship and witness the goodness of God, not in spite of suffering, but in the midst of suffering. What if suffering can actually cause us to see the glory of God in a way that we would not and cannot see any other way? That it's not a blip or a pause in our story, but it's continuation of our story and a crucial part of our story. What if we can actually come to a place where suffering is understood? I know we don't want to make this word. I know we don't want to say that and don't believe that, but what if this is true? What if we can actually come to a place where suffering and trials and tribulations are understood as necessary to see and savor the fullness of of God. By no means we pray for it, but by all means we praise God in it because we know it's necessary to see the full picture. Do you see the distinction? Of course, no one wants it, but Christians, there's a place where you and I can arrive where we no longer see and it's contrary to God's will, but a part of His plan. No longer see it as contrary to our best, but essential for our best. In C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, he writes about how our flesh prevents us from fully knowing God as long as we have counterfeit and alternative cushions to lean on and have beneath us. That God uses suffering to remove those cushions and replace them with Him. We all have those cushions, don't we? We like them. We thank God for them. But sometimes we make gods out of them, don't we? Hello? Hello? Sometimes we lean on them a little too much and we take a little too much refuge in them, don't we? C.S. Lewis in the book, his thesis statement is this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains that it is a megaphone he uses to rouse a deaf world. The problem of pain. One of the greatest extra-biblical text you could ever read. The human experience has proven this is so true, isn't it? That we've grown deaf, we've grown mute to the things of God, and we've begun to rely on the wrong things, haven't we? Of course, many will push back and they will just ask, well, why is there suffering to begin with? Why can't we just avoid it? Well, that's that the easy but incomplete answer is, well, our world has fallen. When sin entered creation, it impacted everything. Death swept over the earth and broke everything in its path. But I want to talk about where suffering comes from as we close. Suffering comes from creations of God twisted and manipulated by and for evil. And by understanding where it comes from, we'll understand why God responds to it the way that he does. Suffering comes from things that God made, people that God made, ideas that God gave that were twisted and manipulated for evil and by evil, whether molecules and cells in the bloodstream of humans that were never meant to mutate, substances God put into the earth that were never meant to be used a certain way, people choosing to use their lives as weapons of hate and destruction. Think about it. God created the wind, but he did not create the tornado. God created the ocean, but he did not create the hurricane. He created the cell, but not the cancer. He created the elements, but not the weapons or the drugs. He created the body, but not the ways it's been used to cause pain. 
That which God created rebelled and unraveled, but what did God do in response to His creation rebelling against Him? When humanity sinned, what was God's reaction? To redeem it for His glory. When the earth fell, what was God's reaction? To redeem it for His glory. Therefore, when humanity and when the earth causes suffering, what is God's reaction to that suffering? To redeem it for His glory. So our instant suggestion to God is remove it. That's what we pray, right? God, remove this, remove this, remove this, please. And we have Bible verses that seem to say that He will, always. But is that in line with God's sovereign choice in redemption that we observe elsewhere, with His desires that we know and experience His full goodness? See, what we know from the Bible is God is not in the business of removing as much as He is using and redeeming for His glory. Now hear this. You say, well, why don't God just prevent it? That's a good question. Why can't He just prevent all bad things from ever happening? Why does He have to use and redeem them? When God let Adam and Eve leave the garden, he chose redemption. Rather than preventing bad from coming or stopping bad when it comes, he chooses redemption. Case in point, God did not prevent me from existing even though I've done a lot of bad things and caused a lot of harm. God does not stop me from existing when I do bad things and when I cause pain. He could have prevented me, and he could have stopped me. And he may still yet. But more often than not, God chooses to use rather than remove. God chooses redemption. He invites us, Job invites us to tread holy ground today. To trust that God will use and not just remove. To invite us to have a patient faith that waits till the story is fully told. You see, Job... Job believed that his God's sovereignty and goodness would remain whether or not his security or his goodness did. Do you believe that? Over in Job 19, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him one day. I might die, and I might not make it through this, but I know there is a reason for all of this. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't have Revelation. He didn't have the Gospels. He didn't even have the, the, the Old Testament but he believed that God would redeem his suffering for something good. That it was necessary to get him to the place that he was ultimately going to go. 2,000 years later, Job, sovereign and good God, stepped into a broken world. Not to remove it, but to have that brokenness put on him. God in flesh, I want you to picture this, God in flesh laid down his life and was nailed to a cross by his own creatures. Who made the tree? Who gave the elements the ability to sharpen a knife and cut down the tree and make a cross out of it? Who made the people? And Jesus on his back with his own eyes, with his back piercing the wood. He watched his own creatures pierce and spit on and beat him and kill him. He suffered and died under the weight, the crushing weight of this world. Why would God do that? You see, Jesus could have removed it, but he refused to remove us. You see, if he's going to get rid of all the bad <laughs> 
Nobody's safe. So he chose not to remove it because he refused to remove us. He was determined to save us, so he chose to suffer for us as all of us at one time. He chose redemption. So when suffering is a part of God's plan for us, and it will be, Job has taught us that we can trust and find joy in this part of God's plan as much as we will any other part. Do you believe that? It's okay if your answer is no, because it's not what we want to believe. It's not what we feel the best about believing, but the, it's crucial that we learn that this is God's will if we're going to get all of God's joy and all of God's glory that he wants us to have. I could give you dozens of passages of Scripture that you should read and memorize, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, Philippians 4, all that tell us about God's purpose for suffering. Over and over again, Jesus' followers pointed to the cross as proof that God is redeeming the world's brokenness for His glory. From there, Job's convictions and beliefs are validated and become the basis for our understanding of suffering and our response to it. The Apostle Peter would write this. I don't want you to miss this. Beloved, do not be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You know, you know what that's saying? Christ redeemed suffering as something glorious, something Job knew God would do. Talk about patient faith. It took 2,000 years for Job's idea to become a reality. That when Christ died, he redeemed suffering as something God uses for good. Something God uses for glory. And what does it say there? You can share in his sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when, when, when his glory is revealed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, his brother James became a leader in the church during a time when the church was under intense persecution. James wrote to a wearied and scarred church. Listen to his words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, I mean, do we? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, this endurance that is so necessary for us to get to where God wants us to go. Now, I don't know if I could say that with confidence. I, don't, I'm, I'm, I might know that's true, but I don't want it to be true. But what does James tell us to do? Rejoice. Act as if your joy is somewhere in the midst of the trial. And no, no one walks into the fire looking for joy. But Job, Job, James says, you can count on it that your joy is in the midst of this. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. There's our, there's our Greek phrase again, telos. The full, finished, complete work. Perfect, complete. So that we might would be lacking nothing. So why is it important that we go into trials with this attitude? Because God wants to fully shape us and form us and make us who we were meant to be. That suffering is not what the enemy tells us, some setback, some thing that will cost us and harm us. No, God says, I've redeemed those things for my glory and for your good. The enemy wants to tell you to give up, don't believe. This is a pause. It's not a pause, it's a purpose. And now I know this isn't easy to accept. This isn't ideal. This isn't what feels right. But what does James tell us in the next verse? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. So I don't know about y'all, but over the last year, I've been asking God, God, give me the wisdom to understand this. Because I don't. 
Give me the wisdom to know what your word tells me so I can agree with you on it. Because it's not what feels right to me or natural to me. Later on, James admonishes us with this familiar reference. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. So James calls back to Job and confirms that Job had it right all along. So what we need to do as a people is pray for God to give us wisdom in this area, don't we? He's not withheld the wisdom. It's right in front of us. It's not some revelation that only somebody will get. We all have it. It's in the Bible. Our prayer today, I hope it will be, God, use this until you choose to remove this. But it's God's choice. Our choice is to pray this prayer. God, use this until you choose to remove this. God, give me patient faith to trust in your perfect plan. Don't you want God's full plan? Don't you want his complete plan? I, I Listen, I know, I know, I know. Nobody in their right mind will go back a year ago and say, God, I pray for the worst year of my life. I mean, I, if you do that, I'm going to lay hands on you today because, whew, I don't want that to be the way you respond to this message. Nobody wants bad things to happen, but we live in a world where bad things are going to happen. And because I'm a bad person, I'm not calling you bad, but I know I have bad in me. God doesn't remove me, so he doesn't remove it. God's choice is to redeem it. So God can redeem what we may consider the worst season of our lives. It's not in vain. It's not a pause. It's on purpose. Would you be willing to allow God to reframe this past year in light of the questions we've asked today? Would you be willing to accept and embrace God's answer from his word today as you may very well enter the worst season of your life tomorrow? I hope you don't, but you might. I may walk out of here and my life fall apart like Job's did in chapter 1. And what I've preached today will be very, very, very absolutely true. In a world full of weary people, broken people, the church needs to be resilient and confident. As many have wondered, why hasn't or when will God remove it? May our message remind people that God is wanting to use it. God is wanting to redeem it, just like He wants to use and redeem them. No chapter of anybody's story is in vain. There is glory to be revealed. May God give us a patient faith, a steadfast heart, to not miss all that He wants us to see. We can show the wearied world that God is glorified in all things, even in suffering, if we remain faithful. We can experience God's purpose through our pain if we persevere with a patient faith. In Job 42, when it's all said and done, Job says this, I know that you can do everything. No purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job knew that God was in control. He prayed for, he received, just like we can, a patient faith to persevere and to redeem even the worst. I believe that's true for you. It may not be what we want, 
may not be what we would imagine, but it's what we need. And if we are gonna experience and reveal the glory of God and be glorify, glorify God in our lives, this is the path we must embrace. Let me pray for you. God, today we ask for a patient faith. We pray for a steadfastness that can trust your full and complete plan. God, would you give us the wisdom? Would you give us the strength to see your goodness in the midst of our pain? Lord, help us to have the confidence that you are not challenged by, you are not diminished by, but rather you are amplified and glorified by the brokenness of this world. Father, in light of what we faced this past year, in light of trying to live a life that glorifies you, Lord, we pray that you might give us the wisdom to see what your plan is, to hold on to faith in the midst of its trial. Father, until you choose to remove it, we pray that you would use it. And we pray you might would help us to see how you're using it and to not give up even when it's difficult to see. God, thank you that suffering is not something that you have no control over. Suffering is not something that is just a waste of our life, costing us life. Suffering is something that you use and redeem for your glory and our good. So Lord, I pray you would encourage somebody today with that. I pray you would help them to see that they can share in the glory of Christ in the midst of their trial. You show them something that is necessary for them to find. Lord, be with us. Guide us, direct us, heal us, and raise us up a better people than we were before. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.